Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. to Exodus 23. Yes, we are back in the book of Exodus after taking a three-week break. If you were not here the past few weeks and you want to catch up on what we as the elders believe is God's strategy for us moving forward, the tell, teach, train strategy, I encourage you to go back online and listen to those sermons that explain that. And we'll be unpacking that over the coming months as well. Exodus chapter 23. Uh, The Chicago Cubs won the World Series back-to-back in 1907 and 1908. And they had to wait 107 seasons before they would win the 2016 World Series. This is the longest winning drought or losing drought, whatever you want to call it, in sports history. Now, some of you may be familiar with the history surrounding the Chicago Cubs. I'm not a Chicago Cubs fan. I'm not from Chicago, but they are kind of sports nostalgia, sports history. There's the Billy Goat curse related to the Chicago Cubs. The Cubs were playing in the 1945 World Series against the Detroit Tigers, and it was during Game 4 at Wrigley Field when a man named William Cianus an owner of a tavern called the Billy Goat Tavern brought his pet goat to the game. Now the goat began to stink and smell. And so the people were getting a little upset, and so they complained, and so basically the authorities came and kicked Sienis out of the game because his Billy Goat smelled bad. And so he stands up and famously says these words, Them cubs, they ain't going to win no more. And that was the billy goat curse. They superstitiously thought that the cubs were cursed. And so that was in 1945. And and so it really wasn't 71 years later until they finally won in 2016. But for those diehard cub fans, they had to wait 107 years for their next championship. That's a long time to wait to get the ultimate victory champions of the World Series. Now, you could probably think of some other sports teams that had to wait a long time to get that championship, to to smell that taste of victory. And and they may have endured embarrassing scandals and and wacky players and weird coaches and a lot of dysfunction. Um, In football, it's the Arizona Cardinals. Now, they were originally the Chicago Cardinals. They won the 1947 championship. Now, they moved to Arizona in 1988 It's been going on 72 years. I don't think the Cardinals are going to win the Super Bowl this year, okay? So 72-year drought. In basketball, it's the Sacramento Kings. They won their NBA championship back in 1951 when they were the Rochester Royals. They moved to Kansas City in 1985. It's been 68 years. I don't think the Sacramento Kings are going to win the NBA championship this year. Droughts, waiting long times for victory. Now, why do I bring up droughts in sports history? 
teams having to wait sometimes 107 years before they repeat that championship. Well, this waiting, this patience, this having to endure trials to final victory is a picture not only of the Israelites as they would leave Egypt and go into the promised land, but I think it vividly portrays the life of the Christian as we, after our salvation, move forward before we actually get to our final home in heaven, that final victory. There's a long period of waiting until final victory. And how we respond during those times of waiting reveals a lot about our spiritual maturity. Okay, we need to get our bearings straight this morning because we're diving back into Exodus. So let me just give a brief history. Israel had been saved from Egyptian slavery by the powerful hand of God through the Red Sea. As they got into the wilderness, they had a lot of trials. You remember they got to the bitter waters at Marah, and God gave them sweet waters to drink. And then they went further into the wilderness, and they were without food. And so the Lord provided manna and quail every day for them to eat. And then finally, they got to a place called Rephidim, which was resting place. And there they were without water. And so Moses struck the rock, and then water came gushing out. And, and the Israelites were, were doing well. It was a place of rest. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the Amalekites come and attack Israel. And then if you remember, Moses had uplifted hands of prayer. He was a prayer warrior praying for God's victory, and Joshua, the military commander, routed the Amalekites. And then they moved to the base of Mount Sinai, that holy mountain that was shaking and quaking with smoke and fire. And the Lord said, you need to take three days to get prepared before I deliver to you the Ten Commandments. And so all over the summer, we looked at each one of the Ten Commandments in great detail and then where we picked off last was after the Lord had spoken the ten words, the people were terrified. They were shaking in their boots, and they did not want God to directly talk to them, so they asked Moses to be their mediator to talk to God in their place. And so they are still at the base of Mount Sinai. They have heard the Ten Commandments. And so if you notice, we ended up in chapter 20. And we're moving to chapter 23. So you're like, why are you skipping over three chapters? Well, for the sake of time, you can go back and read laws about altars, laws about slaves, laws about restitution, and laws about social justice, and laws about Sabbath and festivals on your own, and get your bearings straight. Basically, what God does is God gives Israel very specific concrete laws to govern how they were to live as a nation. Now, the Ten Commandments are pretty broad. The Ten Commandments are pretty big. And so Israel needed very specific commands to govern how they were to live. And so I'm just going to skip over that. You can read that. It's not that they're not important. Just for the sake of time and our journey through Exodus, we're going to be moving through some larger chunks of the book. And so where we are now is where God promises his guardian angel angel of the Lord to lead and guide Israel into the promised land. So let's read together Exodus chapter 23 verses 20 through 33. Roger, are the house lights all the way up or is it just, oh there we go, okay. Exodus chapter 23 starting in verse 20. 
Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and to the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little... I will drive them out from before you until you've increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness of the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So here's the big idea. Here's the main point of this passage of Scripture for this morning. It is this. The Lord leads us to victory on His terms alone. Two truths there. The Lord leads us to victory, but on His terms alone. And I'm going to unpack that for us this morning and how we see that from this passage of Scripture. But we need to ask some questions. Ask a big question. Of this passage of scripture. First question we got to ask is this is the first time we've heard about this guardian angel. Who is the angel of the Lord that God is promising to lead them? Psalm 34 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The angel of the Lord. Psalm 91 11, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Who is this angel of the Lord? Well, God says in verse 20, I'm sending this angel before you to guard you, to bring you into the promised land. The people are to listen to the angel, verse 21, pay attention to him, obey his voice, don't rebel against him. But very interestingly, notice here in verse 21, the angel has authority to pardon or forgive sin. And even more interestingly, notice what else it says there. My name is in him. There's something special about the name of God in this angel. In verse 23, we find out that the angel is going to go before them and drive out the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and all the Jebusites and all the other ites and the termites, anybody else you can think of that ends in ite. And then in verse 27, It says, 
I will send my terror before you and throw people into confusion. I will send hornets into the land. So we find something very interesting about this angel. The angel is not God, but the angel shares much of the qualities and characteristics of God. The angel speaks with authority. They're to obey his voice. The angel can forgive sin. Very interesting. If they rebel against the angel, he will not pardon their sin. The angel shares the name of the Lord. The angel is victorious. He will drive out God's enemies. So who's this angel? What's the identity of this angel? Now, there have been many views throughout history as to who this angel is. Some scholars believe this is merely talking about the glory cloud that we were introduced earlier that led the people. But a cloud is an inanimate object that cannot speak. So I don't think it's the glory cloud. Some scholars think that the word angel in Hebrew can also mean messenger. Some people think it's merely a human messenger like Joshua. So the angel is Joshua that's going to lead them into the promised land. But this sounds more than just a human being. A mere human can't forgive sin and, and share God's name. Some people think maybe it's actually like Michael the archangel, like a literal angel like Michael that's leading the people into the promised land. But we don't really have his name given, Gabriel or Michael. Many scholars believe that this was actually a pre-incarnate Christ. Now, what does that mean? What do you mean by a pre-incarnate Christ? Well, long before Jesus was born of a virgin, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son, was with the Israelites as the angel of the Lord. In other words, what some scholars would say, this was a temporary appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament to guide the Israelites into the promised land. Now, we can't be dogmatic on this because we really don't know. We aren't given the identity. But what we do know is this. This angel shares a lot, a lot of the similarities to Jesus. So whether the angel is a pre-incarnate Jesus or it merely is a foreshadowing of Jesus, the angel is a type and shadow of what Jesus would be when he was born of a virgin. The angel shows us who the Messiah would be. So what are some similarities between the angel of the Lord and Jesus? Well, God says the angel of the Lord is going to be with you. He's going to guide you. He's going to be with you to take you to the place that, that he's prepared. What did Jesus say about always being with us? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus promises to be with us always. The angel of the Lord was there to guide them and show them the way. The way. What did Jesus say about being the way? John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Israelites were to listen to the angel of the Lord and obey his voice. They were to listen. God says, listen to the angel. 
you remember the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus appeared on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he was glowing and shining, and the voice from heaven came down? What did God say in Luke 9.35? A voice came out of the clouds saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. You need to listen to Jesus. You need to obey Jesus. Jesus will always be with you. Jesus is the way, much like this angel is going to be for the Israelites here. And then what does the angel do? The angel's not the same person as God, but he shares the glory of God because he shares the name of God. What does the Bible say about Jesus radiating or sharing the glory of God? Hebrews 1.3, he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Can't be dogmatic. Whether or not the angel of the Lord is Jesus pre-incarnate or just a type and shadow, it shows us what Jesus would be. It shows us a picture of the coming Messiah. And so the angel from this point forward is going to be crucial in leading the Israelites into the land. So the Lord would lead the Israelites to victory, but on his terms alone. And his terms are, I'm sending an angel ahead of you. Now, we could stop right there and say, this is an interesting story. You and I are not ancient Israelites being led by a literal angel in the desert. Are we anybody here? fit that description? None of us here. So let's ask the second question that's maybe a little bit more applicable to us. Question number two. What does this passage teach us today about the Lord leading us to victory on his terms alone? So this is written for our example. This is pointing us towards Jesus. This, this, this episode here in Exodus is a picture of the Christian life and how the Lord is leading us to victory on his terms alone. So what does this passage of Scripture teach us? Well, we see three truths, and they all focus on Jesus. Okay. Back then, it was the angel of the Lord leading the literal Israelites into a literal land to defeat a literal enemy, Jebusites, Perizzites, Hivites. Today, our leader is Jesus leading us to victory. And so let's look at some truths that this passage of Scripture illustrates for us. And here's tr for truth number one, the first truth. Jesus has won the victory over sin and Satan by the cross, but we will still experience spiritual warfare. So we're going to do a little comparison this morning. Let's compare the angel of the Lord and the Israelites to Jesus and us. What did the angel do? Okay, verse 23. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I blot them out, what does the angel of the Lord do? The angel of the Lord leads them into the promised land and blots out their enemies. So the angel is going to drive out the ites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, literal pagan nations that were in the promised land, the Lord, through the angel, would drive these nations out. He would defeat 
Israel's enemies. Now, is our enemy the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Parasites, the Termites? Maybe some of you have those in your home and they are enemies to you. Who is our enemy? Our enemy is the devil, that ancient serpent. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, your enemy, the devil prowls around like a lion, a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So Jesus, as our victor, as our champion, we sang it earlier, victory in Jesus, he defeated Satan on the cross. And it was announced all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Remember when the serpent slithered into the garden and tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and Adam and Eve did sin? And what did God pronounce? God said to the serpent this in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, Jesus would come one day and crush the head of Satan. And so on the cross, Jesus decisively crushed Satan once and for all. Paul tells us in Colossians 2, 14 and 15, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He, Jesus, did what? Disarmed. Disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing them over them in him. On the cross, Jesus decisively won the victory against Satan. He overthrew Satan. He conquered Satan. He crushed the head of Satan. Yet, that is true. But does that necessarily mean that we will never, ever, ever experience spiritual warfare and the attacks of the enemy? No. Satan is a defeated foe. He's been thrown down to earth, and he knows his time is short, so he's going to attack us. So how do we fight? Well, the Israelites, what did they do? They had to actually go into the land and literally displace enemies through literal battle. Swords and clubs and spears. Okay, do, we, do we take up swords and spears and clubs and start going and beating people up? What, what do we do? Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 how we fight. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. That's the key word there, stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We stand against Satan. And do you know what happens when you stand against Satan? James tells us in James 4, 7. Submit yourself Therefore, to God, resist the devil. Same Greek word as stand there in Ephesians. Stand against the devil. Resist the devil. What's he going to do? He will flee from you. You stand in the gospel. 
you stand in the full armor of God. You don't wield weapons. You don't go out and fight other people. Our, our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other people. Our fight is against cosmic forces of evil in the heavenly places, Satan and his demons. And the way we wage the warfare is we stand in the armor of God. We stand in what Jesus actually accomplished for us on the cross. This was read earlier in Revelation 12, 10 through 12. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brothers, that's Satan, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have what? Conquered him. They've conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. The devil comes against us as a roaring lion. We conquer him by the blood of Christ, by the word of our testimony. We stand in the full armor of God. You, you stand against the devil. He will flee from you. So there is a fight in the Christian life. We are called to struggle in this fight. 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight of faith. It's a fight. Now, we don't fight each other. We fight for truth. We fight against spiritual forces. We stand. What did Paul say at the end of his life? 2 Timothy 4.7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. So Jesus is our conqueror. Jesus is our victor. We have victory in Jesus. He's won the battle on the cross decisively against Satan. Satan knows the end of the story. Satan has read the Bible. You don't think Satan's read Revelation? He knows what his end is. But he doesn't know when that end is. So until that time comes, he's going to try to wreak as much havoc on God's people as he can in a battle. And we are called to stand in the gospel, in the full armor of God. And so that means that we desperately need to pray. Earnest prayer. Holding fast to the truth desperately relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. If it's a spiritual battle, we need the Holy Spirit to fight the battle. We can't fight it in our flesh. We pray, we watch, we fight, we stand in the full armor of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's a real battle. Just because Jesus died on the cross and rose again, decisively defeating Satan, does not mean we don't still engage in spiritual warfare. We do. Okay, now here's the second truth, and you're not going to like it. Here's the second truth. Our victory in Jesus does not come all at once, but little by little. You see it in the passage of Scripture? Look at verse 29 through 31. What does God say to Israel? I will not drive them out from before you in one year. It's not going to be a one-year campaign. 
lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. I don't know what your translation says, but the ESV in verse 30 says, little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. It's not going to be one huge decisive victory or conquest, but it's going to take progressively over time, little by little. I'm sure the Israelites love to hear this. Well, thanks, God. We wanted to go in there and just wipe out the enemies in one fell swoop. We wanted instant, instantaneous victory. What do you mean, little by little? Have you read Israel's history? In the book of Joshua, they do defeat the ites. But not all of them, because there's still one ite that's out there, the Jebusites. It's not until hundreds of years later when King David would go capture Jerusalem from the Jebusites that that was when all the ites were finally out of the land. So it took hundreds of years for the enemy to finally be displaced. And aren't we the same we want instant victory over sin with no struggle. We don't want to have to go through trials. We don't want to have to go through spiritual warfare. We want smooth sailing. Now, our family has gone to Disneyland a couple of times, and we've got to take advantage of the fast pass. What the fast pass is, you don't have to wait in line. Anybody here like waiting in lines? If you raise your hand, I want to talk to you afterwards because you're a very special person. We see impatience all around us in our culture. Fad diets, high-speed internet, overnight express mail, smartphone. We live in a microwave magic world. We want things yesterday. Some of you, like me, do not even like to watch TV in real time anymore because we have to watch the commercials. We like to DVR so we can fast-forward the commercials. Remember growing up, there were like only three channels? And you had to get up and actually turn. Some of you are like, what? Three channels? I had to actually get up and turn it? Yes. Remember we got our first remote control like in 1984. That was big. Don and I like hiking. A few years ago we went to, to Gray's Peak around Breckenridge area. And it's a 14er. You know, we're 14,000 foot. And so we got up early and we started hiking. And, you know, this was five or six years ago. So we were still pretty young. And, and so we started hiking and realized these 20-somethings were going up and coming back down while we were still going up. And so we finally got to the top, and we were like, oh, my goodness. We, we finally got our breath, and we realized there's a weird name out there. It's called Mountaintop Experience. That's a misnomer. <laughs> Getting up that hill was like the Christian life. There are peaks. There are valleys. There are open spaces. There are, there are smooth times. There's hard times. Wouldn't you love to climb a 14er by going up in a helicopter and having them drop you off at the top? That's the right way to climb it, right? Don't have to worry about actually climbing it. I get to the top of the mountain without having to do any of the work. That's why John Bunyan called it a pilgrim's progress. It's a progress. It's a lifetime journey of adventure, struggle, Little by little. And some of you can relate to this because you look at your life and you're like, I'm not getting very far. Little by little. But God does that to teach us patience and ultimately to teach us to rely upon him. He's going to get you there. 
but he's going to get you there on his terms alone. Remember, it's his terms alone. God said to the Israelites, I'm not going to do it in one year. It's going to be little by little. And God may be saying to your life, I'm going to get you there, but on my terms. It's going to be little by little. It's going to be slow. It's going to be progressive. You may take one step forward and five steps back, but I'm going to get you there. Because I want you to trust me. I want you to rely upon me. I want you to keep your eyes fixed on me. Have you ever wondered why there are so many agricultural and garden metaphors in the Bible for the Christian life? All over the place. Psalm 1 talked about being planted like a tree in streams so that you can grow. Israel was often referred to as the choice vine. Think of all the parables that Jesus told about seeds and farming and farmers and agriculture and vineyards. And then John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Those of you who are farmers and gardeners know this truth. Growth takes a long time. A harvest takes a while. Nothing worthwhile happens instantaneously. Now, I'm not saying God does not at times give you instant victory. He may do that, and praise the Lord for those times. But for most of us, it's incremental. It's slow. It's like a garden. God's planting a garden, and you're waiting for that fruit. You're waiting for that harvest. You know, it'd be interesting, if we were to write the Bible today, and we were to give all the metaphors, hey, Jesus, let me give you some parables that you can use. You know what we would use? Microwave, smartphones, and DVRs. Jesus used those metaphors because we can relate to that. No, Jesus is like, I'm going to talk about farming. I'm going to talk about agriculture. I'm going to talk about plants. Things that take a while, a process. So our growth comes little by little, and this is how God's orders his kingdom. So you're in a, you're in a spiritual battle against a real enemy, fighting against the spiritual forces of wickedness. And so you're in a spiritual battle. And also at the same time, sometimes God ordains your growth to be little by little so that you can trust him. But here's the third truth we see in this passage of Scripture. As we wait for our final victory in heaven, we're waiting until heaven. We should not be ensnared by sin. Now, this would be the downfall of the Israelites that would lead them into 70 years of Babylonian captivity. What does verse 24 tell you in your passage of Scripture there? Look at verse 24. When you go into the land and I drive these nations out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. God gives them two things to do. Number one... Don't worship false gods. And number two, utterly destroy the idols. Question. Why would Israel be tempted to worship a Canaanite false god? What would be the allure? God knows their hearts and God knows their propensities. When they get into the land and they settle, and they don't fully drive these nations out, and they're living amongst these other nations, and they get comfortable, and they look at the practices of the nations around them. And by the way, the, the Canaanites have this deity for crops, and the Perizzites have this Canaanite or th th this deity for, for, for livestock and, and, and for childbirth. They look around at all these pagan deities, and they say, you know what? 
our crops aren't coming up as fast as they should. My animals are dying. God must have forgotten about us. Let me adopt the pagan ways around me. They would get comfortable. They would get settled. And they would adopt the culture around them. And what does Romans 12, 2 say? Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, why do they need to utterly destroy the pillars? Why do they need to destroy them? Why couldn't they just hide them? Well, if you hide a pillar, you hide an idol, what's going to happen? Well, somebody could stumble upon it and find it. You, You can hide a sin, but when you hide something, what does that mean? You have an intention to go back to it. If I just hide these pillars, if I just hide these idols, I'm not really getting rid of them because I can always go back and get them. And God says, no, no, no. Don't just hide them. Pulverize them. Throw them in the fire and burn them. And if they were, if they were stone, smash them to pieces so there's no trace of them. In other words, totally get rid of the idols so they won't be a snare to you. Notice what he says down there. Verse 20 Verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them or their gods. Don't make any agreements with their gods. Don't fall for their false gods. Verse 33, they shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. What's a snare? It's a trap. It's like Admiral Akbar on Star Wars. That's a trap. You trap wild animals catch birds. Here's the seducting nature of a snare, of a trap. Do you often see a trap coming? You don't often see the trap coming, but what happens when you're in it? It's got you, and you can't escape. It's seductive. It's a snare. And so God says, Israelites, if you don't utterly destroy these idols, if you don't utterly get these idols out of your life by destroying them, you're going to be ensnared. You're going to be trapped. 2 Timothy 2, 25-26. God may perhaps grant them repentance to a knowledge, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. There are people that are in the snare of the devil captured by the devil to do his will. And that's a, a non-saved person, but a saved person can get into the snare of sin, a sin that easily entangles, a sin that trips you up, as Pastor Andrew read earlier, Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. I think other translation says sin that entangles. Sin that ensnares, sin that traps you, sin that's going to make you fall. In other words, what God is saying to the Israelites is have a zero tolerance policy for sin. Zero poly, zero tolerance policy. Don't just hide the sin. Don't just remove the sin and get it out of your way. Destroy it. You see, because if they compromise with little things it would lead to compromising on big things. So what idols 
have you embraced deep in your heart that have become a snare to you? Is there something in your life right now that you've not destroyed that's ensnaring you, entangling you? You need to smash it to pieces. You need to destroy it. You don't just need to flirt with it. You need to get rid of it. How good are you at not only detecting the idols in your heart, but then destroying them, leaving no trace, a zero-tolerance policy for sin? Israel sadly failed. They failed. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. They got ensnared by the pagan nations around them so much snow that the Lord kicked them out of the land. Psalm 78, 17 says this. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. Now, what is the promise of the gospel? What's the good news this morning? The good news is the Lord leads us to victory on his terms alone. But, but it, here's maybe where you are this morning. You may be sitting there thinking, I am entangled in sin. And it's an idol in my heart. And I'm feeling trapped by it. I'm feeling ashamed by it. I'm feeling guilty for it. I can't get out. What do you do? What do you do? Well, by faith, you look to Jesus, who won your victory on the cross, and you rest in his victory for you. You realize that he won the victory. And by faith, you also realize God is working to grow you. Even though you may be entangled in the sin, God may be growing you little by little. Now, I'm not excusing your sin, but I may be saying that there may be some of you here today that are entangled in the sin, and it's slow going getting you out of it. But God's working. God's doing a work in your life. God will give you the victory. And you need to destroy the idols in your life. Don't just hide them. Don't minimize them. Don't trivialize them. Pull that idol out of your heart and look at it and say, that is an idol, that is sinful, and I'm going to destroy it by the power of the gospel. And what you do is, instead of looking at that idol and saying, this is so glorious, this idol, you, you get rid of that idol and instead you look at Jesus and you say, you know what, Jesus is more glorious more powerful, more alluring, more substantive than any idol I could ever have. I am not going to give in to idols. I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus, who's more glorious than the idol I've embraced. Look at verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, and bring you to the place that I've prepared. Jesus says to you today, Behold, I'm guarding you on the way to bring you to the place I have prepared. What were some of Jesus' last words to his disciples on the night of his betrayal? John 14, 1-6, what did Jesus say? 
Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. Jesus has prepared a place for you. Jesus has died on the cross for you. Jesus has conquered sin and Satan on your behalf decisively. Jesus has risen from the grave, and Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to take you to the place he's prepared for you. Jesus has won the victory. Jesus will get you to the victory. Jesus will get you home. It may be little by little. There may be some serious spiritual warfare you've got to deal with, but Jesus will get you home. He will guide you. He will lead you. He has prepared a place for you, and he's never going to leave you or forsake you. So rest secure in this truth that the Lord will lead you to victory, but it's on his terms alone. Those terms may be painful. Those terms may be scary. Those terms may be uncomfortable. But if it's Jesus who's in charge, whose hands do you want to be in? Yours or his? We have a victor. In Jesus. And we can sing confidently, victory in Jesus. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning and spend a few moments asking the Lord to reveal any idol in your heart that needs to be destroyed and asking the Lord to lead you in victory to the place that He has prepared for you. Father, we do come before you this morning, and we're so thankful that you're a God who loves us, a God who never forsakes us. Lord, I just I want to pray a special prayer for anybody in this room today that's struggling with the sin that they feel entangled in, ensnared in. And Lord, maybe they're at the point of despair, they're at the point of hopelessness where they feel like they just can't get out. And maybe the devil's come and attacked them, and they're in a they're in just a bout of spiritual warfare. Lord, would you just remind them today, deep in their hearts, that the victory is theirs through Jesus. Give them hope. Even, Lord, if it's little by little and we don't see a lot of progress, let us know that you are getting us there. You've prepared a place for us. You're taking us there. You're, the victory is yours. Lord, we surrender to you as our captain, as our victor, as our champion. Thank you for decisively beating, Jesus, uh, beating uh, Satan on the cross, Jesus, by your blood, rising again. Help us to stand in prayer. Help us to stand in the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to demolish and destroy the idols that would ensnare us. And will we keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, our champion, our victor, our glorious Lord. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to remind you in the quietness of this moment, if you've never trusted Jesus for salvation, that's where it all starts. You've got to have a relationship with him. And so there may be some of you here today that have never trusted Christ alone. 
And I'm going to encourage you after the worship service, if you would come up and talk to myself or somebody else, we'd love to show you how you can have a relationship with Christ. And if there's any other of you out there that want to come up and talk to us and receive prayer and encouragement, we encourage you to do that after the service, after we sing, to come up and receive that ministry. Lord, bless our time together for your glory. Amen.